And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the uh, second best day of the week. Of course, it's Thursday as we get ready to wrap up this really first full week of trading for uh, the month of December. Uh, of course, this is a very holiday truncated month. Uh, most traders are going to be leaving actually next week, uh, really kind of for the rest of the year because, of course, we have the Christmas uh, break coming up and, of course, New Year's. So, you know, lots of drinking and festivities. Don't want you trading, you know, around those events. So... <laughs> It's where you wind up with those fat finger problems. Um, anyway, but uh, this is going to be a light trading month. Um, so far, markets have been, you know, not doing well uh, so far this month. In fact, Dow down about 4.4% for the month already. That's one of the bigger declines since 1974. Sorry, I said the Dow, I meant the NASDAQ. NASDAQ's down about 4.4%, one of the bigger declines uh, since uh, for quite a while, last couple of decades anyway. Um, so again, you know, markets came down yesterday, really just sitting right on top of that important support at the 100-day moving average. Uh, right below that is 3,900, and, and that's where we're kind of flirting right now. We're at 3,930 as of yesterday's close. Uh, really a break below that 3,900 level is going to start to trigger algorithms to start selling. And uh, that potentially puts markets at risk to go down to the 50-day moving average, which is around 3,800-ish, uh, 3,820 right now. So uh, a bit more of a decline if uh, the selling pressure kind of continues. Now, what could trigger that? That's the big question. Uh, first of all, as we've talked about, we're right in the middle of mutual fund distributions this week and next week. And, and so there's some added selling pressure as mutual funds. We've, uh, we've got about 20% of all mutual funds having to uh, do their year-end rebalancing already. But a lot of mutual funds have to make their distributions for year-end uh, in terms of capital gains, in, if they have them this year. Um, <laughs> but uh, interest income as well as dividend income. So the, you know that has to get done. Um, that's going to put some, that's putting some pressure here, of course. And then next week we have both CPI and the, the FOMC statement. So um, as we start to get that data coming out, that, if, if that leans a lot more hawkish, inflation comes in hotter than expected, doesn't cool as much as expected, whatever that is. Um, or if, and, and probably most likely we're going to see a, a little bit more hawkish Jerome Powell next week. We talked about this yesterday. You know, he, he gave his Brooking Institution speech last week. Market surged 3.1% on that day um, because he basically talked about slowing the pace of rate hikes, which we already all knew that. But the markets took that as a sign that now the Fed is ready to pivot, which is an entirely different matter. You know, slowing the pace of rate hikes and pivoting, two very different things. But the markets mistook that, and of course, as we said yesterday, that eased financial conditions dramatically. Jerome Powell's not going to like that. Uh, so I would expect him to try to clarify his position a bit more uh, coming out next Wednesday because he doesn't want to make that mistake again. So there's certainly some downside risk to the markets over the next two weeks. Again, while we've been talking about taking some profits here, reducing some exposure, but most importantly, you know, one of our better indicators that we followed all year long has been our kind of our MACD, the 
units. That's the moving average convergence divergence. That's the technical jargon for it. Um, but basically, it just measures the breadth between two moving averages. That's all it's doing. Um, that has given a pretty good signal this year to buy and sell markets accordingly uh, to reduce risk or increase risk. We're back on a sell signal after a fairly decent run in the market. So again, that's another potential sign here. And it's not a guarantee, right? So you've always got to take these indicators with a little bit of a grain of salt. It doesn't mean they have to work out exactly as they say. Uh, sometimes these things can reverse uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere. So, but right now we do have a sell signal that does suggest at least some more additional downside pressure on asset prices over the next week or so at least. Now, of course, you know, the big question becomes, does the Santa Claus rally come? You know, there's an old saying that if Santa Claus fails to visit Broad and Wall, um, next year tends not to be so good. Um, so again, a lot of hope here that we do get, uh, don't get a lump of coal this year, that, that Santa actually comes and visits Wall Street that last two weeks of the year. Now, of course, that Santa Claus rally is, is simply just mutual funds, pension funds, hedge funds, all kind of window dressing for their year-end reporting. But typically we get, and again, because there's light volume, a lot of traders are, are gone, a uh, lot less volume, kind of leaves the inmates running the asylum, so to speak. You typically tend to get this little bit of push into the markets at the end of the year. Then, of course, right at the beginning of the year, you get a lot of, of uh, money flows coming in in terms of contributions, 401k plans, SEP, IRAs, etc. Um, that typically gives you a little bit more of a boost in the first part of January. So again, that kind of that three-week stint um, going last two weeks of January, first, uh, sorry, last two weeks of December, first week of January, that kind of three-week period tends to be a little bit more bullish. If it's not, that doesn't really kind of bode well for the rest of the year, statistically speaking. So uh, again, just some things to kind of watch on here. But, but again, as we've talked about here lately and, and have continued to watch, this has been a very, very nice rally from that, those lows. So on September 27th, we wrote the article about the big short squeeze was coming. We've seen that short squeeze. A lot of short stocks have been covered, have been in a very nice upward trend and the markets right at the bottom of that upward trend right now has to hold here today. So market right now, futures are pointing higher this morning. Uh, Dow's up about 54 points, S&P's up about nine. Not a real strong open this morning. So again, this is one of those openings that could easily fail, uh, you know, right after we get the open, get selling coming in. So uh, again, you know, but uh, you know, again, we're sitting right on important support. So the fact the markets are trying to point up a little bit this morning is somewhat encouraging. If we can hold this support level, uh, we can try to keep the market in this consolidation range that really uh, we've been in now for the last couple of weeks. You know, this market has just really gone nowhere um, really ever since about mid-November. We've just been trading sideways, kind of been all over the place, but just kind of trading sideways at the bottom of that consolidation range right now. So if markets can hold here, that'll at least give us an opportunity to maybe trade a little bit higher going into next week. But again, uh, can't reiterate this enough. I would use this rally, as we've been saying for the last two weeks now, <laughs> use this rally uh, that we've had, reduce risk in your portfolio. This is a great time. Do some tax loss harvesting. You're getting ready to wrap up the year. So for, for tax, uh, tax filing purposes, do your tax loss harvesting, reduce some risk in your portfolio, raise some cash. We've been doing that for the last couple of weeks. We're down to our target exposure right now. We're running about 35% equity in our equity models, a little bit more in our ETF model just because of weighting structures. But reduce that equity risk. We've raised cash, uh, have been adding into short-term T-bills here uh, just to hold cash temporarily until we figure out what to do next. 
But again, this is that opportunity, this is that time to do that as we get ready to head into next year. One other note here uh, before we get to Michael Leibowitz this morning. Um, We've been talking about bonds this year, which bonds have had just a, a miserable year so far. Until just recently, uh, market bonds have been doing exceptionally well. We're now very, very overbought. In fact, if you take, you know, if we look at our MACD signal, uh, like we use for the stock market and apply it to the bond market, it is now more overbought than pretty much any other point that we've had in recent history. So very likely we're going to see rates here, uh, kind of our, our bond prices pull back a bit, rates go up a bit. We've had a very, very outsized move in T-bonds, uh, T-bills lately, so especially the 10-year treasury. Um, the, the underlying technicals look like the bottom is in. Um, we've got some good buy signals that are starting to form here. Uh, trend is changing. Volume has been picking up markedly, seeing a lot of money flows into bonds. And this is potentially that risk, uh, that risk off bet as concerns about a recession continue to increase. But if you're looking to add bonds to your portfolio right now, I would wait, be a little bit patient here. Uh, let yields come back up towards that 4% mark. Let bond prices come down. And that could very well happen if we get a hot CPI number or more aggressive uh, Fed speech next week. See those, those rates reverse a bit. That'll give you a better entry point to increase your bond exposure in your portfolio, which I would encourage to do because I think bonds are going to outperform stocks by a wide margin next year. Be right back after the break with Michael Leibowitz. Got to talk about Blackstone this morning. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. It is, of course, uh, Thursday as we get to wrap up this uh, first full week of trading for December. Man, end of the year, fast approaching. This year has gone by really fast. But um, if you haven't done your Christmas shopping yet, not too late. Still get out there and do that. <laughs> Support your local retailer. Um, everybody's like, well, I can't afford it. I know, but do it anyway. Um couple of things we've talked about and you know kind of over time has been you know when you're making investment decisions about your portfolio um, one of the things that we tend to do is to always look for the highest potential rate of return and we make investment decisions based solely on that decision it's like oh wow this investment will give me you know whatever in fact I just a good example I just got a, a proposal in um, yesterday from a group and they're they're raising some capital for an investment and they promise a 16% annualized rate of return. Now, sounds fantastic, right? That's just really almost too good to be true considering that forward returns and equities are likely going to be somewhere between 3 and 6% over time. And 
So you, your first assumption is like, man, let me have that investment, right? 16% a year. That's awesome. Well, there's, there's, you have to evaluate, you know, kind of risk and reward. And, and there's an, Mike wrote an interesting article. It's on our website right now. And, and I've got Mike standing by. Uh, I'm going to let him weigh in on this as well. But he wrote an article uh, talking about, you know, the double dog dare, right? That we all grew up with as kids. And if you, if you ever watched the Christmas story, uh, this, which is now running almost nonstop uh, on, on pretty much any channel at the moment for Christmas. Um, you know, that's where the double dog dare came in. And, you know, so when somebody's double dog dared, and, and this is Mike's point in his, in his article, is that that's really our first introduction into measuring risk and reward. And so when I tell you, hey, you can get the 16% rate of return, you go, man, that sounds great. Give it to me. What is it, though? that I'm getting, right? What's my risk and reward? And this is this is the problem that we have to all evaluate. And one of the options that we always have to think about, and we've talked about this before at length on the show, is that with any investment, you can have two of three items. You can either have capital appreciation, that 16% annual rate of return. I can have safety of principal, which is I get my money back. Or I can have liquidity, but I can't have all three, Right. You know, and this is the important thing to, to evaluate. If I want safety and liquidity, right, that's money market, right? I can get my money in, I can take my money out at a moment's notice, and I have no risk to my principal. If I want liquidity and I want returns, capital appreciation, then that's stocks, right? But I have risk. I can lose principal in these things. So when I start hearing about these really outsized returns, you have to evaluate those three items. What are the three things I can get? And what am I getting in this investment? And the problem with a lot of these high-yielding investments, they're, they're private investments of some sort, right? You've, you've heard of these you know, non-traded REITs, private REITs, private equity investments, you know, these type of things. They do promise and offer really great returns when you're in a bull market. The problem is, is that when you get into a not-so-good market, the problem becomes liquidity. The asset starts losing value and you want to get your money out and you can't. And this is one of the things that we've seen come up here lately. We're going to get more into this story here in a second, but let me bring Michael Leibowitz on here just to talk about the double dog dare for a second. So, you know, when we start talking about risk and reward, you know, we often get too wrapped up in the return structure. And we don't look at the underlying risk. And, and this is kind of really kind of the point of your article that you wrote yesterday on the website. Right, right. We, we focus on the reward, like you said, 16% versus you could buy a treasury at 4% or your expected returns. You know, even in a normal market for stocks is, you know, called 8% to 10%, something like that. Mm -hmm. Why not take 16%? Right. And the answer is risk. And the, the question isn't, well, 16% still may be a good deal, but you have to evaluate the risk and just ask, are they paying me enough of a premium? to to compensate for that risk. So what we do in the article is we run a traditional equity risk premium. How much more is the market paying me in yield to take on stocks versus bonds? And what you find is an answer that's historically pretty low. Mm. So we can think about that in a number of ways, but the way that that really that I think about it is the risks are really high right now. We have an economy that could easily go into a recession, a Fed that doesn't seem to care and almost wants a recession to some degree. 
We have the highest inflation we've had in 40 years. And yes, it's starting to come down, but it's still way off where the Fed would like to see it. We have geopolitical issues. Um, so there's a there's a we have geopolitical I'm sorry issues with Russia. Mm -hmm. China is heating up again a little bit, and the, we should be paid in that environment. We should be paid a little bit more, not a little bit less. On this double dog dare, the risk of breaking my leg or arm are higher than traditional double dog dares. So you're going to have to pay me an extra couple candy bars or whatever whatever the reward is. So so that's our job as investors. And when you look at the S&P 500, we should be demanding more of an equity risk premium, not less. So how do you get more of an equity risk premium? And that comes many different ways. You can look at earnings. Earnings can increase from here. Price stays the same. So what's called your earnings yield or the yield on stocks will get better. That's one way. Stock prices can go down much more than earnings go down or earnings stay flat. That's another way your yield goes up or bond yields drop sharply. So when we talk about earnings yield premium, it's not just the earnings yield on a stock, but it's the difference versus a risk-free U.S. Treasury bond. It's the difference between an investment where there basically is no risk. Right. So, so as we kind of contemplate the future, how might this equity risk premium if anything, normalize, return to average. Maybe it goes above average, but but it's a good thought process for investors to think about how does it normalize. And again, those three puzzle pieces are bond yields drop significantly, earnings rise, and or price stock prices go down. It's hard to see earnings shooting up significantly as we're going into a recession. So that one, I think, is kind of easy to take off the table. The other two which make this exercise a little difficult is we can certainly see a scenario where stock prices fall and bond yields fall. It's basically your recession scenario mm -hmm. where inflation comes down appreciably. Uh, but but understanding those three factors and how they play into the reward, the incentive to buy stocks, I think is a very helpful exercise for investors to think about and work through and think about all the different scenarios. What if bond yields rise from here? What does that mean for the equity risk premium? Mm -hmm. So, you know, walk, you know, walk yourself through the iterations, through the most rosiest case to a soft landing to a deep recession and understand what that may mean for stock prices and bond prices. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, this is, you know, there's kind of, we're throwing a lot of, you know, around a lot of terms here, you know, equity risk premium. And right now it's very low. Historically, that's a, a pretty good sign that you're going to have a reversion in that risk premium. And generally that equates to lower stock prices. And, and you know, it's, it's not a great environment to be in when you have a very low equity risk premium. We also talk about earnings yield. And there's, and, and there's, and there's a lot of, and I wrote an article about this last year because there was a lot of articles running around. It's like, why would you want to own bonds at, and this is when bonds were, you know, at half a percent, one percent of the ten-year. Why would you want to own bonds when you get an earnings yield of four or five percent off of stocks? And that's just the inverse of the PE. So you take price to earnings divided by price, and you get the earnings yield. There's a big difference between a bond yield and an earnings yield. By the way, you don't get an earnings yield 
uh, you can own a stock for a hundred years, and you're never going to get an annual, in, you know, an annual earnings yield payment from the company, right? It just it doesn't happen. You own a bond, you get the yield on the bond because you get an interest payment on that bond on a regular basis, whether it's every six months, quarter, annual, whatever it is. So the earnings yield is a complete just fa mathematical fabrication of saying, well, stocks are theoretically more value or better valued than than bonds but with bonds you always get your return of capital right you have safety of principle and you have return now you know this is this and this goes back to that you know that the three measures of any investment you can only have two or three so take your choice of what's most important to you and this really kind of comes down to you know what we see during these exuberant kind of bullish times and we saw this a lot in 2020 2021 right um you know when we couldn't get ipos out the door fast enough to satisfy investor greed we started doing all these SPACs, right these special purpose acquisition companies and this is uh, this was a backdoor way to do an ipo without going through the ipo process and so this allowed wall street to get more product to market cheaper because or faster because we had all this investor demand just willing to buy anything and if you're willing to buy anything at any price without it with with no real due diligence whatsoever then why not give it to you and i can make money on it and and so just as is any business if there's a excess amount of demand, somebody's going to meet that demand with product. Whether it's good product or not is an entirely different story. But that's the way markets work. And, and this is why it's important. And the reason Mike and I are setting this whole premise up is when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about what's going on with Blackstone. It's been making headlines for the last couple of days. But this goes to the heart of what we're talking about because this isn't the first time we've seen this. Right. We, we, what's going on with Blackstone isn't the first time that we've seen this. We've seen this multiple times in the past. Back in the late 90s, there was a, you know, private REITs that were being floated around that were supposed to be the next best thing since sliced cheese turned out to be horrible investments over the next 20 years. Those happen. Right. And, and so this is why you've got to understand that that double dog dare of risk that you're taking whenever you make any investment you know the returns sound great until you realize and this is always at the worst possible time that you can't get your money out be right back after the break with michael leibowitz we'll talk about blackstone on the other side don't go away investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com in 1999 a para group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients best interest these men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the houston energy corridor today still excoriated by their former employers they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
Welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. So just talking a little bit about, but just laying the premise uh, for our conversation to talk a little bit about Blackstone and what's going on there. You know, and this is one of the things that, you know, we warn a lot about, you know, over time is that, you know, we, we meet with a lot of individuals that have invested in private placements of some sort or another. And during during the bull market phase of the market, it's all fine, right? Because they're they're going up in value, and you see it on your statement, and they're making distributions. It's all good. Problem is, is when things aren't good. And you know, back in the late '90s, there was a you know well-known radio show host around the country at that time, and he was promoting this thing called a bucket strategy. And you know, part of that bucket strategy was putting money into a private REIT that you know, he had ties to, et cetera. And, you know, it was fine until you couldn't get your money out of it. And things didn't go well during the financial crisis. And, you know, this thing was supposed to go public on multiple bases. So you could exit the strategy and, and it just never occurred. And it just became a real problem. And, of course, this is, this is the way these things always work. And I, let me lay out a real simple premise here so you can understand kind of what we're talking about with what's happening with Blackstone or, or REITs in general. Um, Mike and I, we go out and we buy an office building. We have, we have $10 million, and we buy a $10 million office building, right? And so we put that into a portfolio. And, of course, you're, the $10 million we got was we raised the money from you. You sent us the $10 million out of your investment accounts, and we put it into the fund, and we bought the building. So now we own the building, and we're operating the building. The building is generating some cash flow. And so as the building generates cash flow, we distribute the, that cash flow back out to you, less the management fee and less our asset fee, right? So you are getting these distributions, and it's all fine and dandy. It's, it's great, right? You're, you're like, man, I own an office building, and I'm getting my share of the, of the distribution. I'm getting these payments, and it's, and it's fantastic. Works great. And then all of a sudden, a pandemic comes along, and we shut down the economy, and nobody works at the office building anymore. Rents get canceled. Now, all of a sudden, that cash flow drops markedly. Well, the problem is, is now, you know, we've got, Mike and I were, were kind enough when we set up the fund, we, we gave people the option if they wanted to redeem out of the fund, they could at some point. So we would just take some of the operating cash flow and Brent wanted out of the fund. So we would send Brent his, you know, $50,000 that he put in out of the cash flow. We distribute the rest of the money. Well, the problem comes when everybody wants to get their money out at one time. There's only so much cash flow coming out of that building. There's only so much cash in the kitty, and I can't meet all those redemptions unless I sell the building. But I can't sell the building right now because interest rates are high. Nobody wants to own an office building because nobody's renting it, right? And, and what drives the value of an office building in this example is occupancy, right? So values are way down. So now I'm in trouble. So what do I do? Well, the only thing I can do is just tell everybody, you can't get your money back. It's called gating. And you'll hear this term a good bit on, on equity funds and private equity funds and other private placements. When bad things occur, they'll say, we're gating distributions. What that means is they're putting a gate up, and it just basically means you can't get your distribution out. So if you want your money back, you simply can't get it. You're just going to have to wait until Mike and I, at our discretion, are able to dispose of the building. And that might take years, in some cases, for that to occur. So 
that's just a real simple example. I hope that kind of lays down the background. This is and this is the way it operates, though, for a lot of different whether it's a private equity investment or whatever it is. They all kind of operate the same. So, Mike, let me just let you jump in here, give you your uh, kind of hit hit the highlights and let's talk specifically about what's going on with Blackstone right now. Yeah, no, that was a great explanation. And that's exactly Blackstone's problem is that they have a large number of people that want their money back and they have two choices. They can either gate the fund and not give them give them a small, small percentage of their money back or they can sell real estate, which, you know, in normal times, maybe they would do that. In these times, the real estate market for almost anything is illiquid because of high interest rates. So a lot of customers want their investment back. They want their money back. They're not getting it. They're getting, you know, a couple percent of their money back. So this is this is there's a lot to unpack here. The first one is just contagion. Mm -hmm. If I am a pension fund, for instance, and I have 20 percent of my money in private equity, and we go to our investment committee meeting and we say, you know what, there's a recession coming. Let's let's take down our risk levels a little bit. So let's reduce our exposure in private equity from 20 percent to 15 percent. And at the same time, we'll buy bonds or sit on cash, whatever we're going to do. So you say, OK, we have to get our private equity, private investments down from 20 to 15. Let's sell that Blackstone fund. We go to Blackstone. Hey, we need to sell we need to sell a whole bunch of this so we can get down to 15%. They say, well, you can't. You're, you're only going to be selling 1 million worth today. Mm-hmm. And that maybe that gets us to 19%. So we still have 4% more to sell, meaning that we're going to have to sell other private assets. And all these other private assets potentially have very similar problems. They don't own stocks or bonds that can be easily traded. They own assets, and the reason they pay higher rates of return is because they own assets that are less liquid. And you say, okay, well, let's go to these four other funds that we own and let's try to sell them. And then all of a sudden they get gated. And now you get worried. Let's just try to sell all our private equity funds. And maybe you get down to 15% doing that. Or maybe you're like, you know what? These things aren't liquid. Liquidity is at a premium now. Let's just sell whatever we can. And that's the contagion risk that is starting to form here. And the word I used earlier was liquidity. Mm-hmm. You know, Lance and I have talked about liquidity over and over again. And we've talked about the lag effect of what the Fed's doing. And this is another domino. This is just like the UK pension funds with their with their uh, treasury, with their uh, UK treasury bonds. This is FTX. When the liquidity dries up, leveraged, uh, illiquid, speculative investments start to go by the wayside. And this is just another example where the Fed's actions take a long time, but they're slowly catching up to some of these assets. And this thing could resolve itself very, very nicely. Maybe Blackstone sells a building or two. They meet everyone's needs and there's not this rush to sell private investments, but maybe it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, as the Fed keeps doing 95 billion of QT every month, as they continue to raise rates, which they may not be as aggressive as they were, but they're still raising rates and rates are still very high, even if long term yields are starting to come down that all pulls liquidity from the system. And as a result, you're starting to see more chinks in the armor, more of these 
illiquid investments starting to fails, not the right word, but starting to take on problems that can, even though the underlying real estate may not be a problem, the fund structure itself can be a problem because they have to sell illiquid real estate that they can't sell. Right. And Lance, if we go back to 2008, what was interesting is there were a lot of people that held subprime, that market was closed. So when they wanted to to take off risk, to de-risk their portfolio, they couldn't sell subprime. In a lot of cases, they were selling regular government-guaranteed mortgage-backed securities, U.S. Treasuries, mm -hmm. corporate investment-grade bonds. So, so you can see how, like in the subprime instance, if something's closed, like this private equity, and liquidity is needed, something else has to be sold. So, it, you know, it's not always the uh, the worst, the most speculative, the most illiquid assets. Sometimes that can gravitate towards very liquid assets if, yeah. if money is needed. Yeah, you know, and if we go back to 2008 is a good example of that, right? You know, Bear Stearns was, uh, you know, what brought down Bear Stearns is they had two big hedge funds that were, you know, called high yield funds that were invested heavily in, you know, all kinds of different subprime mortgages and everything else that were thought to be very safe. Um, when they became illiquid, um, big demands for return of capital couldn't meet it. And then, of course, that wound up bringing down the whole investment bank. So, you know, and, and to your point, you know, this is the you know, this is one of the important things about private equity. It doesn't mean that, you know, investing in private placements and those type of things don't work out well. They can and they can do well. Um, but there are times and, and, and it's kind of like those multi-level marketing deals where, if you're the first guy in <laughs> into the multi-level marketing program, you do well, right? It's the last guys in that don't do well. And it's the same thing with with private placements. If you're the first guy in and the first guy out, you're okay. Um, it's the it's the last guys trying to get out of these things that wind up getting in trouble. So, you know, it's it's always better to be early, right, Mike? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but and there's a lot of last guys given last year's bullish run into illiquid assets. Exactly, and, and so this is the one thing that is to always look at is that this happens over time, and we when we see this, the more greed there is then the more that these funds just start throwing in, you know, more and more programs, right? So they just start buying more and more assets. And again, when you have too much money chasing too few assets, what happens is, is that the quality of the investments go way down. And that really increases the risk that when you get into the next economic recession, downturn, whatever you want to call it, you know, that's when the, the lack of quality shows up in these investments and that's where you find out exactly what you own remember too just very quickly when you get these prospectuses I'll always tell you the internal rate of return on this investment is 16 percent it's based on the most optimistic assumptions that's not history it's not what the fund has done over the last 10 20 30 years right it's what they're expecting it to do based on the most optimistic of of of, of views and those typically don't work out over time as well as they always purport that they will. Be right back after the break. We'll wrap up our conversation. What does Blackstone potentially mean for the rest of the market? We'll talk about that. Don't go away.
Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, Mike and I just uh, talking a little bit about Blackstone private investments in general and the potential risk uh, to financial markets. And just for the break, we we're talking a little bit about greed, right? And and when you have a lot of capital flowing into markets, and and again, too much capital chasing too few assets, you know, you get this kind of greed cycle. And and just an example of this, just as as you know really just to make that point, right? In 20, 20 as of December 31st, 2021, um, AUM, which is the Assets Under Management for Blackstone, was reported. Now, here's the interesting thing. So remember in 2020, 2021, what did we have going on? $5 trillion worth of, of money being poured into the economy by the federal government, $120 billion a month in quantitative easing by the Fed. Right, so we just had massive capital inflows coming into the markets um, from all different angles. The capital, the assets that Blackstone managed in 2021, double, almost doubled. It was up 42 percent on a year-over-year basis from 2020. So that just goes to show you, right? There was just greed. I have all this capital. Where can I put it? Oh well, Blackstone's telling me I can get to this private equity placement this private REIT, whatever it is, and I'm going to make 15 16% a year on my money. Why would not, as Mike said earlier, why wouldn't you put your money there, right? Risk and reward. Now, here's the important thing. As we've talked about, Mike and I have talked about here on the show before about financial instability. And the one thing we're watching for is those risks of financial instability because what's going to cause the Fed to pivot? What would stop the Federal Reserve from hiking rates and go immediately back to dropping interest rates and doing QE. And that would be financial instability, right? A threat to the financial system. Most people don't remember. Mike does because he's as old as I am almost. He's, he's still a kid. He's younger than me, but he's getting there. 1998, 1998 was a small little highly leveraged hedge fund started by a bond trader in 1994 following the bond market crash when the Fed was hiking rates, by the way. They started this little hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management, which at its peak managed $126 billion. When it failed, because the Fed was hiking interest rates, it required a massive bailout from 14 banks to get that long-term capital management problem solved. Now, that was back in 1998. Asset markets are a lot bigger today. The point is, is that now you've got FTX, we've talked about recently, which is blown up, that was only $30 billion. Not that big of a deal. Market can absorb that. But now, potentially, and I'm not saying Blackstone's about to go bankrupt by any imagination, but you've got a firm of $880 billion that's sitting in highly leveraged assets, right? Real estate. It's a highly leveraged business. 
Now, again, I'm not I'm not telling you right now that Blackstone's the next black swan event. It's Bear Stearns. But here's the point I am making is that these are the things that Mike and I have been talking about in terms of financial instability. These are the cracks in that foundation of financial stability, which is so imperative to the Federal Reserve and their monetary policy. As long as everything is, is operating, they can keep hiking rates. The problem is, is when something breaks. And again, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that Blackstone is that straw that breaks the camel's back. But these are the things that you're kind of looking for because we're also seeing credit risk. We're seeing leverage loans, uh, you know, risk rising. We're starting to see some of those other cracks in the credit markets as well. They're not pronounced yet, but they're starting to show up. Mike, your your, your point. Yeah, and and like you said, Blackstone is not going to default, at least certainly not on this fund. They just manage the fund. Now, what they will lose is a whole lot of revenue. Apparently, they're charging over 3.5% a year to manage this fund. So they are going to lose a lot of revenue, but it's really the people that own the fund that are going to be the losers. They're the ones that are going to take the risk. So, you know, worst case, they, they have to divest of all the real estate assets, they're going to sell the assets, get whatever they can get and pass it on to their fund holders at, you know, 50 cents on a dollar, 30 cents on a dollar, whatever it may be. Blackstone, though, is not necessarily at risk because of this one fund, but it's that contagion. It's the dominoes. Mm -hmm. What happens when three big investors all of a sudden have to cut their investment, you know, the value of their investment in half and they're over levered? And and that's the problem. It, it's it's not necessarily the obvious points of failure that that are are concerning. It's the ones we don't know. There are there's so much leverage in the system. Which banks have leveraged out? You know, have loaned out money to some of these big investors. Long term capital, you know, based on what they were doing, were buying simple arbitrage trades. They would buy. Security A, sell Security B at a at a price difference, knowing full well that that virtually guaranteed that the price of A and the price of B will be the same in 30 days. That's arbitrage. And it was it's not risk free arbitrage, but but it's guaranteed that in a certain amount of time, A will equal B and that their investment will pay off. The problem is that between the point they put the investment on and the point where they were supposed to be paid off, the difference between A and B became much wider. They were using a lot more leverage. They had to back out of those trades and realize some, you know, backbreaking losses. So, you know, even in risk in quote unquote risk free trades, there's there's a risk to the system and that's liquidity. It's leverage. It's it's the fact that they're not investing like you and me, where they have a hundred bucks, they invest a hundred bucks. Worst case, a hundred bucks goes to zero. They're investing 10 bucks, borrowing 90 bucks. And when you have a $20 drop in the price of the asset, all of a sudden, you not only lost your 10 bucks, you're, you're actually out 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. So that's why leverage is so important. And that's why liquidity is so important because when liquidity dries up, leverage dries up. And we have an economy and financial markets that are based, that are built on extremely large amounts of leverage of debt. So, you know, the Fed's pulling out 95 billion of liquidity a month. 
The interest rates on that liquidity, on that leverage, have shot up. It used to be very low. Now they're up three or four percent from where they were. So all those bets don't make nearly as much sense today as they did a year ago when both liquidity was flowing and margin debts or leverage, you know, leverage costs were much lower. Mm -hmm. And this is the unwind of the fantastic amounts of liquidity that were pumped into the system, you know, a year and two years ago. And as long as the Fed keeps on this path with both higher interest rates and removing liquidity, we should expect to see more dominoes. And the question, and it's one we can't answer is, which is the domino that breaks the camel's back, so to speak? Which is the one that somehow is affiliated with a major bank or a major brokerage firm or requires them to sell assets that will create problems. And we don't know. It's is it Blackstone? I don't know. I probably not. But but is Blackstone just going to create another domino and a domino after that is the one that that gets the Fed to pivot? Could be. And, you know, Lance and I use the frame phrase all the time. The Fed's going to go until they break something. And this is what we mean by breaking something. It, it by default, they will break something if they keep pulling liquidity out of markets. That's just the way it is, because there's not enough debt to support the assets if they keep pulling liquidity. The question is when and do they stop before they get to that point? And yeah, that's, that's why we're going to keep following <laughs> Blackstone and, and other potential areas for problems. Yeah. And, and again, you know, uh, you know, I, and, you know, I also want you to take away from this conversation that Mike and I are having with you that this doesn't also mean that we're telling you that the market's about to blow up. We're about to have another financial crisis. We're not saying that at all. What we're saying is, is there's risk and we're watching that risk carefully. These are the things you want to pay attention to. But it doesn't mean that, you know, the world is going to come to an end and you should be in the bunker with gold and beanie weenies and ammo. Right. It just, you know, we have to manage risk. And, and that's what we're talking about here. And we're watching that risk where, you know, this is why we're heavily underweight equities in our portfolio. We're very overweight cash because we are concerned about the risk right now. Um, but if miraculously somehow the fed is able to navigate into a soft landing scenario mike and i have, have talked about this before and we this is a discussion that mike and i have literally every day how on earth do we navigate into a soft landing scenario right employment you know is still strong right job growth is still strong unemployment rates are still low you know, we don't see any real stress in job openings and labor turnover yet. You know, so maybe uh, consumer spending is doing OK. You know, people are able to take on more credit card debt and keep spending. So maybe we can navigate some type of soft landing scenario where the economy slows down towards zero, but doesn't go into a recession and nothing breaks. There's a possibility that could occur. The problem is when we start layering up all the other indicators in the markets and the economy certainly suggest the risk of recession is a lot higher uh, than 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 we would like. And there's certainly risk to equities in that environment because earnings will have to come down. But a recession doesn't necessarily mean that the world breaks and we're back into the Stone Ages again. So, you know, it's important to keep a good balance on what's going on in the markets, understanding what the risks are, and then equating that back to how your portfolio is allocated and how you're managing that risk in your portfolio. As we've talked about before, you know, trying to avoid the crash has cost investors more money than the crash itself. And this is just something to always try to remember when you manage your money is 
you know, don't manage for the worst outcome. Manage for the most possible outcome. Be right. Uh, that wraps up the show for the day. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Of course, it's Thursday. Tomorrow, Danny Ratliff and Richard Russell will be here for Financial Fitness Friday. Three minutes on markets and money are coming up. Get by the website. Mike's latest article, Double Dog Dares and Equity Risk Premiums. That's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Of course, check out Simplevisor, our research platform. There has all of our research and analysis that we do when we manage portfolios. It's on that website, simplevisor.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow.